Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came on the earth. And Noah with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth. That is a short passage from one of the most famous stories in the Bible the story of Noah and his flood. But I chose to read that part of the story because there is one glaring contradiction that often stands out to the reader. First, God tells Noah to take seven pairs of every clean animal and of the birds and one pair of the unclean animals. And then it says that Noah, according to God's instructions, took just one pair of clean and unclean, and of the birds. Scholars have an explanation for why those kinds of contradictions can be found in the Noah story. Most of them agree that the flood story in Genesis was composed out of different stories that, at some point, came to be edited together, and that the editing took place in such a way as to leave clear traces of the original stories. Scholars argue and disagree over exactly how and when these stories were written and how they came together, but virtually all of them agree that one of the last steps was that an author, who was a member of the priestly class, added a great deal to the story in the period following the exile of the people of Judah in Babylon. So, the story clearly changed over time and it particularly seems to have changed because the people of Judah encountered the Babylonians and heard their stories. Well, as you know, 
I am always interested in how stories get told and retold over time because, well, this is Retelling the Bible. Episode 8.5 The Priest Who Rewrote the Bible Once upon a time, a great city called Shurupak was built on the shores of the Euphrates River. And as the city grew and filled with people, it became so noisy that even the gods began to complain about the din. The storm god Enlil was so upset that the city was disturbing his beauty sleep that he gathered all the gods and demanded that something be done about it. He persuaded them to wipe out all the mortals in a great flood. But the god Ea disagreed with this plan and sent a warning in a dream to a man named Utna Pishtim. With the help of his children and hired men, Utna Pishtim built an enormous boat with seven decks. The boat was launched, loaded with supplies. Utna Pishtim's children, wife, relatives, animals, and craftsmen. Early the next day, a black cloud appeared on the horizon, and a great storm came. A storm so powerful that even the gods cowered in fear. The storm raged for six days and nights, but finally, with the dawn of the seventh day, the rains stopped and the sea became calm. Utna Pishtim opened the hatch of his boat and saw that he was surrounded by an endless sea. But there, in the distance, he saw a mountain rising up out of the water. He sailed towards the mountain for six days and six nights, and on the dawn of the seventh day, Utna Pishtim released a dove into the air. The dove flew off, but it soon returned, for it had found no place to land. Then Utna Pishtim released a swallow, and it also returned. Finally, Utna Pishtim released a raven that did not come back. 
Utnapishtim then opened the hatches and made an offering of cane, cedar, and myrtle on the mountaintop in a heated cauldron. And the gods swarmed like flies over the smoke of the sacrifice. When you live in a strange land, one of the best ways to get to know the people you are living among is to listen to their stories. These will tell you a lot about how they see the world and their place in it. And so, when the ancient people of Judah were taken away against their will and forced to live in the land of Babylon and work for the Babylonian people, they heard the stories of their captors. Stories that taught them a great deal about this powerful and warlike people. And the story of Utnapishtim and the Great Flood was one of those stories that they heard. We know that they heard it in the streets of Babylon because the story had been around for centuries before they ever got there. The story is found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and there are copies of that book that date back to 1800 BCE, older than any of the writings in the Bible. So, what did the story of Utnapishtim teach the Judahites about their Babylonian captors? Well, it certainly taught them a lot about the kinds of gods that they believed in. Impetuous gods who were upset by things like the noise of a city. They were also gods whose default reaction when things weren't exactly as they liked was to lash out in violence and destruction. But the gods also didn't really think through those reactions. They clearly regretted it when they no longer received sacrifices from the people that they had destroyed. They suddenly realized, in fact, how dependent they were on these filthy and noisy mortals for everything, swarming around Utnapishtim's act of worship as if they were starving. And as the expatriate Jews heard these stories about the Babylonian gods, they looked knowingly at each other. These stories corresponded to everything they knew about their captors. The Babylonians were cruel and always ready to lash out in violence whenever anyone annoyed them or disturbed them. Indeed, 
They resorted to violence so quickly that they didn't even think through the consequences of their actions. But as the Hebrews served the Babylonians together with other captives, they also knew how dependent they were. If ever the Babylonians carried through on their frequent threats to wipe out the people they called noisy vermin, the ones who served them, they would be starving and scrambling for resources within days. They were just like their gods. The Judahites, at that time, had their own stories of a great flood, probably based on some shared ancestral memory of a great cataclysmic event. In their stories, the hero was called Noah instead of Utnapishtim. But the stories were so alike in many ways that when they heard the Babylonian epic, many things sounded very familiar. For example, their story of Noah ended almost exactly the same with Noah sending out birds to look for land and a final sacrifice when he was able to disembark. The Hebrews didn't worship a whole bunch of gods like the Babylonians did. They believed that there was only one God worth worshiping. So, of course, their story of Noah only featured one God, who determined to wipe out humanity, but also chose to warn and save the hero. It is admittedly a more difficult story to tell when you have to explain everything according to the will of the same God. But the Hebrews were clearly master storytellers, and they somehow managed to make sense of it all. The Hebrew story was better, in some ways, than the Babylonian version. The Babylonian god's decision to flood everything was basically a noise complaint that was taken too far. The God of the Hebrews had a better reason. He saw how humanity had fallen into a terrible habit of responding to evil and violence with evermore evil and violence. The flood, in their story, was a desperate attempt on the part of God to break that never-ending cycle of ever-increasing violence. That seems like a better motivation, even if the strategy is more than a bit questionable, because the fact of the matter is that you can never solve the problem of violence and slaughter with 
more violence and slaughter. The Hebrew story also ended with a scene very reminiscent of the Babylonian tale, with Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, smelling the pleasing odor of Noah's sacrifice and regretting the wholesale destruction of the flood. Perhaps that was a dim echo of the more ancient Babylonian tale. It also ended with a new promise that God made to the survivors, a promise that is very much focused on the spiraling problem of violence that has led to the flood in the first place. I will never again curse the ground because of humans, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. Yes, human nature may not change, but God has learned that responding to slaughter with more slaughter doesn't solve anything. Isn't it time that we learn that as well? So, the Hebrews already had their own blood story. But that story was also influenced by its encounter with the Babylonian tale. One of them, we do not know his name, but he was probably a member of the priestly class because his writing shows a great deal of concern for priestly matters, had an extraordinary experience as a result of encountering the Babylonians and hearing their stories. He was inspired by God. I don't know how it happened. It might have happened in a dream or a vision, or it might have come in the form of a deep conviction that the Babylonian way of relating to the world was wrong and that God wanted the people of Judah to see things in a very different way. But somehow, he came to see that God had laid it on him to add to their story of Noah. The priestly author had a very important insight into how the experience of the flood changed God's approach an insight that was truly brilliant and plainly inspired. You see, he added to the story the detail that God didn't just like the smell of the sacrifice, but that God did something about the regret for the flood. The story already had an ending in which God promised to never destroy the world with water again. But this priestly author was not satisfied with that ending. So he just added another in which God made a covenant. As for me, 
God said to Noah, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, what did this newly inspired ending of the story do? It made something very clear to the Judahites who had experienced the devastation of the Babylonian exile. It showed in unmistakable terms that the God that they served was not like the gods of Babylon. Their God was not in it just for the smoke of the sacrifices. Their God was not just tolerating them at least if they weren't too noisy, for the payoff of receiving their worship. No, this was a God who cared, who was in relationship with humanity, and indeed with every living creature on earth. You only make covenants with people you are in a relationship with. What a remarkable contrast to the kinds of gods who were featured in the story of Utnapishtim. But think about what that means for a moment. Because they had heard the Babylonian tale, because they had experienced living as exiles in the land of Babylon, and seeing how the Babylonians lived out their relationship with their gods, the people of Israel were left with a new, deeper, and better understanding of who their God was. A God who made a covenant with them, and indeed with the whole world and everything that lived upon it. That is the fascinating thing about the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. There are clear layers in its development. The story developed over time. And I don't have any problem with observing that. I don't even see a contradiction between observing that and believing that the Bible is an inspired book. After all, if God is truly that powerful, why wouldn't God decide to inspire a series of authors over a long period to develop the various layers of the story and convey more meaning? And so, we come to see the Bible developing over time as a living document of a people who are coming to discover who their God is 
through a great variety of experiences, including their contact with people like the Babylonians. What an amazing thing. And it is something that I think is much more helpful to people who are working out their own relationship with God than a story that was written once and remained fixed ever since. Today, we're being told a new version of the story of the Flood. It is the story of a coming disaster. And I know you've all heard it. It's not a story about gods, but it is a story about consequences for the excesses of human beings. And do you know what the problem with the humans is according to this new story? It is not exactly that our cities are too noisy, nor is it really that human beings are too prone to violence, though honestly we really haven't gotten very far in terms of solving either of those problems. No. The problem is apparently that we have been burning too much carbon for too long, mostly because of our endless pursuit of more and more wealth. And what is the consequence of this? The modern story is that the consequence is, among other things, that the glaciers will melt and the flood waters will rise to devastating effect on human and animal populations. That is one of the key and very frightening stories of our modern age, and we hear it all the time. And the question is, what do people who take the Bible seriously do with that? Should they simply take the story of Noah's flood as they've always understood it and leave it unadapted to this new threat and new information? I do hear some Christians doing that. They say, oh, well, God promised at the end of Noah's flood that he would never destroy the world again using water. So, obviously... What the scientists are predicting will never happen. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. But I'm not sure that is what the response should be. The priestly writer heard the story that was being told in Babylon in his day. A story that was new to him that led to him being inspired by God to tell the old story of his people in a new way. That is a terrific way to respond when you hear a new story. Could the flood story of our time be challenging people of faith to rethink their relationship with God and the world 
that God created, and all the things that live upon it. That is how stories work. We tell them and retell them, and they lead us ever deeper into new understandings. That is the power of them. That is one reason why I do what I do. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks, which, yes, will continue the Ark Saga with an episode that I'm calling Teamsters of the Lost Ark. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da by Kevin MacLeod, and the mood music for this episode was Evacuation by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com and at filmmusic.io, respectively. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. You can contact me on twitter.com at retellingbible and on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast, and welcome to one of my newest supporters, Dave Miller. Your support means so much to me. Go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible to support this podcast. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.